A very good morning to you all. I'm all of a sudden very loud. Last week we celebrated Easter, which is the central event of the Christian calendar. And one of the key parts of the Easter story is, of course, the Last Supper narrative, where Jesus instituted what we now call communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, various names for it, it's the same thing. Arguably the central event of our Christian worship. Today, with Easter still in mind, and with graduating students preparing for one last heave, and then off to pastures new for most of them, it seems like a good time for us to draw together as a church and take communion, although we normally only do that in home groups for reasons which will soon become apparent. Different traditions have various, uh, various different interpretations of what's actually happening when we take communion together. To some, it's purely symbolic, a mere memorial, and that's fine. To others, it is a sacrament, by which we mean an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And there's varying degrees of belief about exactly what is happening in that. And the very fact that equally wise and learned and godly people have come to such differing views on the subject should encourage us to feel that we don't have to have it absolutely buttoned down, what's going on. An element of mystery unavoidably and necessarily remains. We in this room probably hold a variety of beliefs on the subject, but if your conscience allows you, as mine does, let's share communion together. I'd like to look at a couple of scriptures today um, about the subject of communion. I want to begin in Luke 22:14 with the Last Supper. And then we're going to move on to have a brief look at Acts chapter 2, where we find some helpful uh, guidelines about how the earliest church practice communion and then we're going to finish up in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 where we see how things develop good and bad and find some very helpful teaching on our attitudes to communion so number one the first origin of communion can you have a first origin or is that a tautology it's just an origin isn't it <clears throat> the beginning in the beginning uh, Luke 22 uh, verses 14 and following I hope you have a bible with you uh, if not, our friends upstairs may be able to get it up on the screen. You catch me if you can, guys. Luke twenty-two fourteen and following. <clears throat> and when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves for who's the greater 
the one who's reclining at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These words, which were only written down many years after the event, convey the origin of what was by that time common practice among all the churches. Everyone knew who Luke meant when he referred to the apostles. They were the early heroes of the faith. By then, most of them already martyred for their faith. But Luke is apparently keen to convey not only the purpose of communion itself, but also the frailties of these great saints. This should surely have been a spiritual high spot in their careers. Even at this holy moment, one of them is about to betray Jesus. Even under the shadow of the cross, they start bickering about which of them is the greatest. A bunch of Muhammad Ali's. And a couple of lines later, Jesus will predict Simon Peter's famous denial that he ever even knew who he was. Yet these feeble followers are the ones, verse 28, who have stayed with Jesus in his trials. They have had this symbolic meal, and now Jesus tells them they're the ones who get to sit at the table also in his now-but-not-yet kingdom. When this passage is commonly read at communion services, we tend to stop at verse 20, but Luke doesn't. He doesn't allow us that comfortable interpretation of the evening's events. He goes on to describe in full the frailties of those who took part in this first communion service. If we learn nothing else about the Lord's Supper from this passage, let's remember that what qualifies us to sit at the table of the Lord is not having sorted out lives. It is sticking faithfully to Jesus. So if you sometimes get scared, like Jesus knew that Peter was going to, he still welcomes you to his table. If, like the disciples, you tend to think yourself above serving your brothers and sisters, he still welcomes you to his table. Even if you hold elements of betrayal in your heart, he still welcomes you to his table. The people he invites to take communion with him have just one qualification. They stick with him when the going gets tough. It's not about success. It's not about sinlessness. It's about faithfulness in our relationship with him. Very quickly, I want to notice some other elements going down to verse 20 that may be helpful as we seek the meaning of this rather mysterious thing that we call communion. Verse 15, it is a Passover meal. In verse 16, the whole Passover thing, a tradition that had been held for hundreds of years, is about to be fulfilled in this passage as never before. Down the ages, it had been a, a, a vital memorial of the escape of Israel from Egypt, from slavery, through the greatness of their God, through the death of the firstborn. But now, as Jesus revealed, that that merely prefigured all those celebrations, the annual celebration, merely prefigured what was now going to be fulfilled. The true Passover lamb, the lamb of God, is going to die so that those who spiritually eat him are saved entirely and forever from the power of death. They drink from one cup, verse 17. 
not individual ones, expressing the unity in their need to come together to one source. Verse 18, terrible and wonderful events are about to unfold over the next few days. They're certainly not the disaster they seem to be. They are, in fact, God's kingdom coming. Verse 19, Jesus himself is the bread that we are to eat. Not his words, not his miracles, not even the Bible. As we come to communion, we commit ourselves to this truth. It's not about a pattern of behavior or of adherence to a set of beliefs. It's about a relationship with a person. They were commanded to do this in remembrance of me, a real person whom they actually knew. I don't know about you, but when I receive communion, I I tend easily to remember things about Jesus rather than really trying to connect with, to, to meet with and spiritually feed on the Jesus whom I actually know, the Jesus I meet every time I pray. Verse 20, this is about a new covenant in Jesus' blood. Throughout the Old Testament, God made many covenants with mankind, if you think about it, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, Jacob, with all of Israel through Moses, and then again with the King David. And he renewed and refined and uh, uh, refreshed his covenant with people over and over and over again. But this covenant supersedes and surpasses and fulfills every one of them. So as we eat this symbolic meal, we are agreeing in that covenant relationship with God that we will relate to him through the blood of Jesus shed for us. As the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension finally opened the way for us to relate to God in the simplicity and openness that Adam and Eve knew in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Today, let's treat communion as a renewal of that wonderful agreement with our God. Number two, the earliest practice of communion. First reference we can find is in Acts 2 verses 42 and following, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. I'm always tripped up by that word awe, and just so I can share the joy. Um, the, the story goes that when... Um, This has nothing to do with the talk at all. John Wayne was the centurion in that story about, the film about big epic, Hollywood epic about Jesus. And uh, his his one line in the entire show was, truly this man was the son of God. And he delivered it just like that. Truly this man was the son of God. The director said, no, no, John, say it with awe. And so they rolled the cameras again and it came to his moment and close up on his face, he said, awe, truly this man was the son of God. So now you can have the word awe ruined for you as well. If you were here last time that we talked about Pentecost, you'll remember that movement we spoke of from Passover to Pentecost. In the Old Testament, 
Passover freed God's people from earthly slavery by the death of the firstborn. And Pentecost brought them into earthly nationhood at Mount Sinai when God gave them the law. In the New Testament, Passover freed us from slavery to sin and death. Again, by the death of the firstborn, if you think about it. And Pentecost formed us into the church when God gave us the Holy Spirit. Earlier in this chapter, when the Spirit came, 3,000 people had just been added to the church. And now they need to put some systems in place pronto. And verses 42 to 47 tell us what those early systems were. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not aware of any time between uh, the Passover and Pentecost, between the Last Supper and, and this time, that the disciples actually took communion. It seems to have been when the Holy Spirit came, when the church began to be formed, that that was the thing that kicked them into action on actually completing that memorial that Jesus asked them to do in communion. Notice, if you will, the two mentions of breaking bread in verses 42 and 46. Now, almost every commentator I came across uh, agrees that this refers to communion. Communion taken as part of a, a proper meal, just as it was at the Last Supper. But in particular, I want you to notice the filling of the literary sandwich here. Between those two mentions of breaking bread, we find awe, miracles, sharing possessions, the eradication of need from the community of faith. We also see words like every soul, all who believed, together, in common, to all, as any had need. This is together life, writ large. For them, the sharing of the Lord's Supper was a major expression, but just one expression of a unity and a faith that works itself out in their community in various different ways. And that actually leads me almost inexorably, though you don't know it, to a necessary digression from the subject of communion. If you're visiting with us today, I invite you to excuse us for a couple of minutes while we talk a little bit of uh, Kingdom Vineyard family business. As most of you know, this summer we begin the process of handing over the duties and responsibilities of senior pastor to our successors, the wonderful Jim and Rachel Cronin. And the way the trustees have structured that process to ensure what we might think of as a soft Brexit is actually for, for Jim to come onto the staff before I step down so that he can learn the ropes with the maximum of help and guidance. It's like that short section of a relay race where one runner is passing on the baton to the next one. So just for a moment, uh, a brief moment, which might be a year, might be less, uh, Jim and I are going to be running on the same track at the same time. And then I'll drop out exhausted and he will forge on ahead. But here's the rub. During that period, though I'm going to take a reduced salary, we'll still have to pay two salaries, not one. The trustees have wisely budgeted for Jim to only be paid part-time to begin with. But frankly, I think it'd be really helpful to him and Rachel. And they're making some sacrifices to come here, after all, and lead us. If we could pay him full-time as early as possible. Also, to be dangerously frank, the sooner we can move Jim to full-time, the more we'll get out of him as a church. So I think it's a good investment. So I'd like to, I'd like to ask you, quite simply, to consider what you might uh, want to give extra above what you normally do to make that possible. As you leave today, a couple of the trustees are going to be handing out some envelopes so that you can, you can put in them during the week either a cheque 
or maybe an indication of what you've decided to give, either online or by other means. And then you bring it back next week, and we'll bring those envelopes to the Thanksgiving service, which has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Thanksgiving service next week. Now, obviously, if you're not a member here, this doesn't apply to you, but the rest of us, this is just something... We're going through this process together, so it's an opportunity for us to put our money where our mouth is. There's no need to make a decision today. I want you to have a think during the week and you genuinely work out what it is the Lord's calling you to give. Whatever you decide, it's just another expression of our unity as a church, like forgiving one another, like blending our voices together in worship, like taking communion today. And that brings us neatly back on track. It is a sad fact that this kind of genuine unity is a very far cry from what communion has become in many churches up and down the land. In many occasions, people live entirely separate lives in churches. And on Sunday, they queue up to receive communion as individuals, each one still locked in his own private world. Well, I'm not sure that the apostles would even recognize that as communion at all. In Acts, it was an expression of true community. A solemn moment in the context of a meal with trusted friends. Now notice that verse 46 makes a definite separation between the large gathering in the temple on the one hand, where there's room for everyone, and the smaller breaking of bread gatherings, which took place in people's homes. Our normal practice in Kingdom Vineyard is to take communion in home groups where people do genuinely share one another's lives. That's about the closest we can come in any structured way to that group of 13 intimate friends who shared the first ever communion together. But doing this all together today gives us a chance to affirm our unity as a church and simply as Christians in several important matters. And I list them really only to help you to consider them as you approach the communion table. Most importantly, we share our complete reliance on the covenant in Jesus' blood. But in addition, we as a church affirm our commitment, not just to a particular vision and values and practices, but above all to God and neighbor, to Jesus and to his people. We also acknowledge that we come to his table as equals, ordinary forgiven sinners. So as we come, we make a point of forgiving one another, as we've been forgiven. And in communion, we particularly restate our body life together. We come together as one mystical body, which feeds spiritually on Jesus. It seems to me impossible for one person to take communion, just as a human individual can't eat the body and blood of Jesus. I think it's only together, as we gather together into a spiritual body, that we can receive this spiritual food in any meaningful way. And that means every one of us taking responsibility for seeing that the body remains as healthy and whole as it can be. Quite soon after the idyllic scenes of uh, Acts 2, however, communion is mentioned in a letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, where St. Paul has to correct some abuses. Uh, For them, as for us, this concerns, and this is point three, our attitudes to communion. Just going to read two passages from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and I'm going to comment very briefly as we go along. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is verse 1 of chapter 10. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. In their wilderness wanderings, Israel stayed alive by eating the miracle bread that came down from heaven. And on two occasions, also by drinking water, miraculously provided for them out of the solid rock. Interestingly, in John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread that came down from heaven, the bread of life. And in John 7, he calls all who are thirsty to come to him and drink. Israel eating manna in the desert prefigures us taking our spiritual food in communion. And their experiences of God's salvation through water are compared to our own baptism. But neither baptism nor communion have a magical transformative effect. The rituals alone do not make us pleasing to God. They don't give us life in him. Verses 6 to 15 say that we who are baptized and take communion can't simply do whatever we like and still remain spiritually alive. Yes, we all get tempted but there are no excuses for sin. And religious observance of the sacraments is not a heavenly get-out-of-jail-free card. However, rightly received, they do have life-giving properties in growing and sanctifying our lives. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What am I saying there? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of God and the table of demons. The ancient Jewish sacrifices, verse 18, in in common with those of other world religions at the time, involved the ritual killing and eating of an animal. By eating it, you were taking into yourself the benefits of the sacrifice. A major problem in Corinth was the temptation to indulge in this mixture of religions. They might have looked pretty harmless from the outside, but in fact it was very spiritually hazardous. And like all sin, verse 17 implies, it brings spiritual sickness, not just for the individual, but for the whole church. The bread feeds and so becomes part of the body. The spiritual food we find in Jesus is supposed to feed and build up the church. But a church member eating food offered to idols involves not just himself, but the whole church in communion with demons. Now, that exact issue isn't a particular problem in Fife at the moment, I don't think. Um, It may be in other parts of the world. But the thought is part of a package that definitely does concern us. From verses 6 to 14, we find a list of the disastrous sins of Israel, and idolatry is just one of them. We find 
desiring evil, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, grumbling and arrogance. And of course, all kinds of idolatry and idols. I don't think any of us would bow down to a graven image as such. But Christians often make all kinds of sacrifices in their lives in the names of things like my children's education, fitness, family life, home ownership. And it can be frighteningly easy to do this, as we do this, to push God slightly to one side. So perfectly worthy and good things can become idols, can take a place in our diaries, in our budgeting, in our hearts, that really belongs to God alone. As we come to communion, it's good to take inventory of our lives in respect of concealed idolatries, as well as more obvious sin. Paul returns to the issue of communion in chapter 11, verses 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat for an eating. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, one gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Am I going to commend you in this? No, I'm not. The thing was that wealthy people with big houses often fed the poor in separate, less opulent rooms than their own dining rooms. And that practice had crept from society into the church. So fine wines and posh nosh for the toffs in the great dining hall, and in the scullery, some Tesco value baked beans and a bottle of gamers old English for the paupers. Well, they were quite right to take communion as a social as well as a spiritual meal, but they were horribly wrong when they divided the social group concerned into the wealthy and the not-so-wealthy. They weren't reflecting the unity of the body at all. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Now, to my mind, when Paul speaks of discerning the body in verse 29, he's speaking less of seeing the bread in some mystical way as Christ's body and more about our attitude to the body of Christ, the church. And in some ways, I think it comes to the same thing. Because if we really thought of the bread and wine of communion as the body and blood of Jesus and sought to take it into ourselves... Surely we could only do that in in absolute humility and repentance. And that would mean straining for love and unity with every fibre of our beings. As verse 28 says, Let a person examine herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's not saying 
don't eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Saying, examine yourself and then do it. So, to conclude. When we take communion, we reaffirm our covenant relationship with God through Jesus. And we also reaffirm our body relationship with each other. Now, everyone who is willing to do that is welcome to the Lord's table here. If you haven't yet decided whether you want to follow Jesus, it's absolutely fine for you to stay in your seats when we take communion. But if you're ready to make that decision today, then feel free to join us. And if you're undecided but you'd like some prayer anyway, do feel free to go to the tables. There are four tables dotted around the room. Just go, go up to one of the tables and say, I don't want to take communion, but I would, I would like some prayer. That is fine as well. No one should feel excluded today. And of course, if you're a member of another church, you're more than welcome to join us. We're all sinners, saved by grace. And some of us are painfully aware, aren't we, of broken relationships and stuff like that. But that needn't keep us from the Lord's table. Our differences are nothing in the light of eternity when God's plan is to reconcile all things to himself. And they're not the thing to concentrate on this morning. Our unity in Christ will only be perfected in eternity. But taking communion, we're committing to working on it in the meantime, that's all. The rest of it, like the rest of life, is a work in progress. As we gather around the tables, let's do so remembering how much we've been forgiven. Let's remember that this is something that we do together as a body, not as individuals. So let's not just take our, our bit of bread and wine and go back to our seats as if we were alone with God here. Let's take our bit and then step back and let others step forward, let others pray for us, pray for one another, pray with eyes open, maybe give some bread to somebody else. You know, however the Holy Spirit moves you, bless and prophesy over each other. Take second helpings if it's, if it's appropriate, because why not? Our God is a God of abundance, not just rations. And receive Jesus himself, exactly as he wants to relate to you today. Now, Carol has asked a couple of leaders to go to each of the, the four communion points, the four tables. Um, if we can move the tables so that people can get right around the tables. Uh, and the table I'm pointing to now, uh, my left, your right at the back, has hypoallergenic unleaded bread or something. Uh, and I think, I think there's no alcohol involved, darling, is there? Oh, are we alcohol-free? We're alcohol-free this morning. Um, those of you who are concerned about that. So I'm just going to... If you'd all stand and I'll just say a prayer and then we can degenerate into a church, as they say. Uh, there's two tables at the front and two at the back and the one on... My left, your right, at the back, is the hypoallergenic, uh, gluten-free, everything-free bread. Okay. And what we're going to ask you to do is just, just go up to the table, take a little bit of bread, dip it in the wine, and receive it that way. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour, we thank you for all the benefits of what we celebrate at Easter your life and death and resurrection and ascension for your perfect offering for the sins of the world. And we thank you but your grace through faith can be appropriated into our own hearts. And that's what we want to do as we 
uh, as we appropriate a little bit of bread and juice into our bodies this morning in obedience to your command. We want to appropriate your life into our lives. And we pray that as we do this, we'll have a real meeting with you today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.